Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books in German Studies podcast. My name is Darren O'Byrne, and today I'm joined in person by Wolfgang Seibel, Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Constance University and Adjunct Professor of Public Administration at the Hertie School of Governance here in Berlin. He's written and edited numerous books, including Verwaltung verstehen, or in English, Understanding Administration, and Der Precäre Staat, Herrschen und Verwalten im Nationalsozialismus, in English, uh, The Precarious or Uncertain state, a governance and administration under national socialism. But he's joined me today to talk about what I think is his latest book to be translated into English. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's called Persecution and Rescue, The Politics of the Final Solution, 1940 to 1944, published last year with the University of Michigan Press. Professor Scheibel, you're very welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. I want to start with you first, if I can. Uh, could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about you uh, and your career and how your interest in public administration informed your approach to this book? Well, uh, I, I'm a political scientist by training, and I developed an interest in public administration or necessarily many years ago because uh, there, there's a famous saying of... Uh, old German sociologist Max Weber, who said at one point, well, in everyday life, uh, to rule means one thing, and that's administration. So as a political scientist, I was always interested in how, well, uh, the organization of power functions, and our public administration is inevitably in, well, part and parcel, as they say, of, of uh, mobilization of power and uh, how power is being being used and uh, being mobilized and being constrained at the same time. The book's subtitle is The Politics of the Final Solution in, in France, 1940 to 1944. And I want to start at the beginning, if I may. Uh, Germany has just defeated France in the summer of 1940, and, and the country is partitioned into different zones of, of occupation. Could you maybe explain um, how and why this comes about, and, and maybe who is occupying where? Well, the thing is that... Uh, even for the German uh, military and even for Hitler himself, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, s- sudden and, and quick uh, uh, defeat of France came as a, as a surprise. And uh, so uh, these people still had in mind the, the Great War and uh, the, uh, the war in the, 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 the trenches that had stretched over, over four years. So uh, the, um, the mindset, as, as far as we know, was uh, now what, what counted was to preserve uh, stability and to neutralize France as an ally of the United Kingdom in an ongoing war. And uh, that uh, was the main objective. And as a result of that, uh, 
the the armistice conditions and the armistice was signed on June the twenty second, nineteen forty, were relatively mild in the sense that uh, uh, the, the the Germans conceded to leave a, a, a head of state in place, an entire government, and also they conceded to the French that a large part of uh, French territory in, in the French mainland uh, remained uh, unoccupied, uh, uh, meaning um, unoccupied by German military forces, and that was the southeastern part of France. In the middle, or well, between the occupied and the unoccupied zone, uh, was, a, was a demarcation line uh, that was heavily guarded. And in November 1942, after the Allied, the landing of the of the Allied forces in northern Africa, then the uh, the Germans also occupied the rest of uh, mainland France. Uh, but this is in a nutshell uh, how, in territorial terms, uh, the occupation, the German occupation regime, was uh, was was organized, and in political terms. Uh, uh, the uh, the Germans and Hitler in person had a certain interest in keeping the French state intact because French, after all, was an empire and uh, with with uh, well, colonies stretching from the West Indies to uh, Southeast Asia, and the question to what extent those colonies would remain loyal to the French government that ultimately. Uh, took uh, uh, residence in the spa town of Vichy, which became a synonym of the uh, well, uh, French government itself. Uh, the question, how loyal uh, the administration and the military personnel and the colonies would remain to the Vichy government was crucial for the German war efforts as well, because, uh, well, obviously, uh, since there was um, an, uh, well, a kind of alternative uh, political force uh, residing in London under General de Gaulle, there were split loyalties uh, all over the place as far as French administration and the military were concerned. So having a stable, visible and relatively strong government in place on the French mainland from the ver- German point of view was of pivotal importance. Just with regards to the Vichy authorities, do they have any authority whatsoever in the other zones of occupied France? Yes. So, uh, as a matter of fact, um, uh, the division of the French mainland into two zones, uh, the northern zone or northwestern zone that was militarily occupied by the Germans and the southeastern zone, uh, did not directly apply or, well, yeah, did not directly affect uh, the, uh, the the French administration as such. So uh, the, the the Vichy authorities were in charge of running the uh, civil administration of the entire territory of France in both the occupied and the non-occupied zone. However, with serious restrictions uh, in the militarily occupied zone in the in the northwest. Uh, of the country that also included the entire coastal zone uh, at the at the Atlantic, which uh, the Germans held under military control uh, by obvious military reasons, especially uh, to defend uh, 
the uh, the, the the Atlantic coast uh, against a potential landing by either the British or the Americans uh, once the United States had entered the war in uh, December 1941 over both of them, which turned out to be the case um, in uh, June 1944. So we've outlined the context now. Um, the whole the whole book is about the, the fate of the Jews in France. And you talk about how their fate in France, whether it be their persecution or even later on the, the measures taken um, to protect them, or at least that resulted in them not being deported, that this was guided by the quest for power within a fairly elaborate power-sharing administration comprising both uh, German and French sides. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about the key players or institutions within this power-sharing administration, um, who they were and what exactly they wanted to achieve? What, were, what was the power they were seeking to achieve? Yeah, one, one has to bear in mind that, that France was, uh, well, or among the uh, countries occupied by the Germans during the Second World War. Uh, France was a unique case. First, it was uh, a great power, as I said, uh, a true empire with colonies all over the place. And uh, it was um, the uh, our, of our, a, a crucial geopolitical uh, importance and uh, consequently um, that implied also of crucial importance. Uh, for the German war efforts, both in a defensive and in an offensive uh, sense, because the uh, economic power of France was very important, and of course the Germans made any uh, every effort to mobilize French economic power for their own uh, war uh, efforts. And uh, second, it was of uh, well pivotal importance to. Uh, keep France at least neutral in the ongoing war. Uh, and uh, that was uh, more or less achieved by the armistice uh, uh, whose uh, political and administrative system was kept intact uh, literally until the liberation of France in uh, July and August 1944. So the power-sharing arrangement uh, you you mentioned uh, was based on the fact that by those basic political, military, and economic objectives, the Germans had to concede competences, resources, and some sort of political discretionary leeway to the French government uh, residing in the spa town of Vichy. And the power-sharing arrangement, in turn, implied that many things the Germans wanted to achieve in terms of political goals or in terms of economic necessities had to be negotiated with their French counterparts. And that also affected uh, the so-called Jewish question, or to use the, uh, well, the, the German euphemism of the time, the final solution of the Jewish question. In 1940, when the Germans arrive, um, what, is, what is the final solution in 1940? Because it's not what it will later become. Yeah, well, it is, I, I think it's common knowledge that, that uh, the, the German uh, uh, plans to uh, persecute the Jews uh, 
emerged in several stages, and it was initially the plan to uh, to uh, eliminate uh, the Jews from German soil, and then uh, when the war was going on in the early years of 1939 through early 1941, uh, in terms of of uh, either forced emigration or uh, to uh, well ship uh, hundreds of thousands or even millions of Jews to the island of Madagascar. Uh, and uh, so the so-called Madagascar plane was a transitionary, transitional stage of, of these, uh, um, well, if you will, master plan of uh, anti-Jewish uh, uh, persecution. And uh, it was uh, in early uh, 1942, uh, on January the 20th, to be exact, uh, of 1922, that at this infamous Wannsee conference meeting, uh, in, a, in, a, in a villa uh, in a, at the outskirts of, of Berlin, uh, the uh, decision was made uh, to eliminate, to annihilate physically all the Jews uh, under German rule in the entirety of Europe and even beyond uh, through uh, mass murder. And this uh, a process of a slowly emerging but always determined and strictly planned process of how to eliminate the Jews from all the nations and societies under German control, that necessarily also affected France under German occupation. But in the context of, of what's going on early on in, in the year 1940, when the measures being talked about for a final solution at that stage, what measures then do the French side take, the Vichy regime, to assist the German side in the pursuit of their yeah. final solution at that stage? In order to understand uh, that appropriately, one uh, needs to bear in mind that the Vichy regime itself was an authoritarian right-wing regime with a very strong anti-Semitic current. And that anti-Semitism was uh, well, a part of the overall political mindset of the Vichy regime. The, the Jews, uh, according to all the myths and legends uh, uh, prevalent at the time, were being made responsible for the domestic weakness of France. Uh, they uh, were um, uh, denounced as being uh, disproportionately represented in certain professions, and uh, they uh, were uh, under suspicion not uh, to be loyal citizens and so on and so forth. So all this was not uh, especially uh, French or this was not especially uh, unique uh, and did not characterize the Vichy regime or uh, the, the uh, right-wing French anti-Semitism uh, as such. That was not originally French, but it became necessarily very influential under German occupation because the Germans had their own much more radical anti-Jewish agenda. So uh, it was uh, a kind of a political and ideological merger that uh, took place once the German had invaded France and had established their occupation regime. 
However, the initial steps of anti-Jewish persecution took uh, place under the Vichy authority and according to the political will of the Vichy regime alone. So the first decrees are that are were designed to remove the Jews from certain professions or to force them to uh, mark their shops and businesses as so-called Jewish enterprises. Those steps were taken on the Vichy initiative alone without visible, at least, German interference. Of course, the Germans and the German military authorities, including the very, well, at that time, uh, well, uh, minor and, and insignificant representatives of the Gestapo and the SS, they welcomed those measures. But uh, initially, and as far as the, the basic impulse was uh, concerned, those were original Vichy France uh, initiatives. Would you say they're, in a way, working towards the fuel, in a way, the French authorities? Vichy authorities or uh, the Vichy regime, uh, they were not uh, in this uh, Ian Kershaw sense working towards the Führer. They were much more working uh, in, uh, well, based on the notion to preserve uh, French sovereignty and to do that in accordance with the basic ideological persuasions and, of course, political and economic interests in their own perception and in their own definition. And uh, that was shaping also their uh, Vichy's approach to, well, how to handle the so-called Jewish question, because uh, it was much more about safeguarding French initiative and French competences and jurisdiction over everything that had to do with contentious areas of our whole public uh, service or public administration uh, in defense uh, against the uh, German occupying power, much more about that than about, uh, well, uh, forming an alliance with the Germans uh, against uh, a common enemy such as the French. That uh, was certainly true uh, as far as the two ideologically motivated collaborators uh, at the extreme right in uh, France and French uh, domestic uh, politics was concerned. But uh, as a well, uh, famous, well-known uh, political scientist and historian Stanley Hoffman has put it in the 1960s already, it was about state collaboration. It was uh, much more about uh, sober-minded uh, political calculation that uh, was driving the so-called collaboration of Vichy with the Germans rather than ideological uh, well, uh, ideological uh, uh, proximity or um, well, um, a kind of uh, ideologically motivated uh, will to go after the Jews. Uh, so it was uh, much more the original anti-Semitism uh, with a will to uh, remove the Jews as far as possible from certain professions and, above all, from the civil service. Uh, but there was not 
the, the, uh, uh, no, no parallel to the German master plan to uh, eliminate the Jews uh, physically. It is amazing that they almost preempt what the Germans want in a way that, that, is there any moment where the Germans arrive and they say, okay, well, now you need to do X, Y, and Z, or do the French just say, okay, this is what we need to do, and we're going to do it? Well, uh, that varied. There were uh, uh, measures of persecution, especially in the economic field, where the French uh, authorities, the Vichy authorities, were amazingly quick in our, uh, well, establishing uh regulation and legislation uh, that restrained uh, the uh, uh, economic liberty and the civil liberties of of, uh, Jews so that uh, the Germans in the period between the fall of 1940 and the summer of 1941, for example, probably would not have asked for more. Uh, in terms of persecution uh, measures. But the decisive threshold uh, where uh, was uh, the, the, the physical deportation of the Jews from French soil. So certainly it was about the legal restrictions and it also was uh, about the uh, well, uh, removal of Jews from uh, any kind of significant economic activity. And that was... Uh, well, put in place under full Vichy uh, jurisdiction, especially the so-called Aryanization of Jewish uh, enterprises. Uh, but the uh, contentious issue was the physical elimination from French soil. So if the French are, are willingly enacting these measures, um, is, there, is there at this early stage a police presence, a German police presence in France, and what are they, do, are they doing? Are they just, they're just supervising what's going on, observing? Yes, the Germans had, had their uh, own occupation administration, and unlike in most of other places in, in German-occupied Europe, uh, that was a military administration, and so it was basically the German Wehrmacht who was in charge uh, of also uh, the civil administration or supervising rather the French civil uh, administration and there they had their own uh, divisions and their own uh, well, officials in charge of the uh, persecution measures directed against the Jews as well and uh, it started like I said with the economic measures and uh, then uh, it was uh, an internal uh, well, rivalry and struggle within the German uh, uh, occupation regime that step by step made the SS and the Gestapo more influential. And that happened, ironically enough, against the resistance of the Wehrmacht and the military administration, but ultimately, with the benefit of hindsight, you might say, well, not surprisingly, the SS and the Gestapo uh, prevailed and they established their own security apparatus. And it was that apparatus under the auspices of the SS that, uh, according to the general pattern all over uh, German-occupied Europe, uh, implemented the uh, physical elimination 
of the Jews, including the deportation from French soil as far as France was concerned. And this is this is the topic that I want to turn to now. Uh, one of the most interesting things about the book is how you show that these institutional power struggles within this power sharing administration, as you call it, were not just between German and French sides, but that they were also power struggles within the German side and even within the French side. And how in 1942, the security police, we'll call them the SS for for simplicity, um, how the SS, uh, they managed to score a massive victory over the army Mm -hmm. by usurping its authority in Mm -hmm. the realm of policing. Can you maybe say a little bit about how and why that came about? Well, the, the thing uh, was that initially, meaning in the, in the year of 1940, it was the, the Wehrmacht, the German military, uh, that found itself at the peak of its prestige and influence due to this uh, quick and uh, dramatic military victory over France. Uh, so the military administration, in political terms, was uh, very strong. Maybe it was strongest in France all over the place as far as German-occupied territories was concerned. And they, of course, took pride in their military uh, success. And initially, uh, those who uh, became the uh, well pillar and the key actors of uh, the so-called final solution, meaning the mass murder and initially the deportation of the Jews, namely the SS, was pretty weak in France. It was just a handful of people. And, uh, well, step by step, they tried to gain influence and to prop up their own security apparatus. They called it security, but in reality, of course, it was a repression apparatus. And it was both a question of of operational skill and capability and political influence. And what we observe in the period between early fall uh, 1941 and, uh, well, the month of April and May 1942 is a turf war between the SS and uh, the German Wehrmacht on, uh, within the German uh, occupation regime in, in France uh, that, uh, to put it in a nutshell, uh, and to give you the brief version, uh, resulted in the resignation of the German military commander, so the highest-ranking uh, general of the German military administration in uh, in France, uh, uh, Otto von Stülpnagel, that was his name, and by some old twist and irony, he was succeeded by uh, a, a, a cousin with the same surname, also a general uh, von Stülpnagel, whose first name was Karl Heinrich, and uh, who was actually uh, well. Um, well, hanged after the uh, failed uh, assassination plot against Hitler in July 1944. So he was uh, anything but a typical Nazi. But uh, in the course of that turf war, the SS had gained strength and power, and the formal uh, uh, indicator for that was the uh, establishment of the position of a so-called higher uh, SS and police uh, 
commander or a German is Führer, SS and Polizeiführer that had not existed before in France, but was uh, otherwise the uh, the usual regional instance of the SS uh, uh, apparatus. And the general expectation, and the quite natural expectation, also among the other branches and divisions of the occupation administration, the German occupation administration in France was that now had come the time where uh, the military would be sidelined and that especially the persecution of the Jews would be radicalized and it was uh, necessarily also the expectation, uh, the rank and file uh, officials of the SS and the Gestapo themselves uh, held back then. But the interesting thing is that the SS turned out to be much more diplomatic and much more flexible in terms of its own political agenda uh, that was pursued uh, in France than expected. So just to clarify, this, this power grab on behalf of the SS, it came on the back of a, a hostage crisis. Yes. And they used this as a catalyst to seize power from the Wehrmacht, who have been accused of not pursuing this harsh enough, for not um, being radical enough in their pursuit mm -hmm. of this problem. Mm -hmm. Do the SS then kill more hostages than the Wehrmacht had? No. The irony is the, the, the opposite came true. And it was... Uh, uh, well, brutal uh, uh, and mere cynicism that initially, meaning after the German uh, invasion of Soviet Russia in June and the subsequent uh, uh, acts of sabotage committed uh, mainly but not exclusively by communists and in, in France, and the the German both anti-communist and anti-Jewish propaganda and the context of of that. Uh, is the uh, the so-called hostage crisis emerged out of uh, the fact that the German military administration in France it took hostages and under the pressure, uh, sometimes from Hitler in person, they uh, executed uh, uh, summarily Summarily, well, 50 or 100 Frenchmen that had uh, taken hostage uh, for one uh, German soldier or otherwise, uh, well, a member of the German occupation administration uh, in uh, response to uh, uh, assassinations or attacks on German military personnel or military institutions. And that uh, created a very difficult and awkward situation for the Vichy regime because it was clearly against uh, any kind of national, even, uh, well, uh, or maybe even especially uh, right-wing and conservative nationalist feeling that the occupying power was executing so many Frenchmen in exchange or in response uh, to acts of resistance, uh, even if those were communist or including the Vichy propaganda, uh, well, uh, Jews and communists, that was, by the way, the same language that was used by the Vichy propaganda, very similar to the German propaganda back then. Uh, nonetheless, uh, 
the the fact that so many Frenchmen uh, died at the hand of the uh, German occupation power created or undermined the authority of the Vichy government, and that was what uh, the German, the high-ranking military representatives of the occupation regime uh, tried uh, desperately to make clear to the authorities in Berlin. But that was sabotaged by the SS, especially by Reinhard Heinrich, uh, who was uh, the strongman of the SS and uh, uh, a man with very determined career uh, ambitions. He not uh, mitigated the uh, well, uh, erupting crisis as far as the smooth collaboration between German and French authorities uh, was concerned, but he escalated the crisis and he did that for one purpose only, uh, which was uh, gaining power at the expenses of the German military, the military administration in France, and he uh, ultimately succeeded in, in uh, those efforts. Now, we've sort of outlined the contours of what each side in this wanted to achieve. For the French, it was autonomy, and for the SS, it was power. The sort of the, the dimensions change, however, after 1942, because whereas before 1942, the mass murder of the Jews tended to proceed locally, more or less, afterwards we begin to see the emergence of a, a general plan to, to murder all um, Jews in, in their entirety. And with that, there are increasing demands placed by the security services in France on the French side to deliver Jews for, for deportation. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how far the French side were willing to go in this regard? I mean, were they willing to give up Jews, just the same amount of Jews that the Germans required, or were they a little bit more reserved? Yeah, they... Um they were reserved, uh, especially as, as far as one uh, issue was concerned, and that was the uh, potential deportation of, of Jews uh, of French citizenship. Uh, that for the Vichy, even for the Vichy authority, was a question of, of principle. Um, while they conceded, after some kind of arduous uh, negotiations, one, one has to say, uh, to have all the non-French Jews deported, including uh, Jews that had fled to France in the hope to uh, find refuge there. So they uh, handed them over to the Germans, uh, and they did that, of course, in accordance with the German uh, deportation scheme. But uh, initially, meaning from mid-July on, uh, those deportation plans were carried out uh, according to what had been agreed upon at the Wannsee conference. And uh, so uh, it was, from the German perspective, a first achievement, especially, of course, an achievement of the SS and the Gestapo, that also from French soil, the Jews were being deported, and they were deported, as a matter of fact, uh, directly to Auschwitz, almost all of them, where they were, again, almost all of them murdered on the spot upon arrival in the gas chambers. Perhaps the most 
visible product of German-French cooperation after the emergence of this general plan to murder all of the Jews was the oberg Bosque Agreement mm-hmm. of August 1942. Um, can you tell us briefly about what that was? Yes. So the uh, what is called the oberg Bosque uh, Accord or Agreement uh, was uh, was signed on August the 8th, uh, 1942, and it was a very general and comprehensive agreement about all police matters in cooperation or collaboration between the Germans and uh, the uh, Vichy government. And that included, uh, among other things, uh, the, uh, well, uh, the uh, concession of the Vichy government to hand over to the Germans uh, the uh, enemies of the Reich, that was the language in use. And that again included the Jews as far as they were uh, not French Jews. So that was basically uh, the, uh, the, the, the follow-up agreement uh, to what had been agreed upon earlier, roughly uh, well, six weeks earlier, between uh, Bousquet, and Bousquet was uh, René Bousquet, the Secretary General of the French Police on the one hand, and his German counterpart, as far as, as the SS and Gestapo was concerned, Karl Oberg. And that's where the name comes from, the Oberg-Bousquet Accord or Agreement. But the decisive point, as far as the fate of the Jews was concerned, that it was, uh, well, of the official seal, if you will, on an agreement that served, as far as German interests were concerned, the purpose to having a the legal, uh, quasi-legal or at least official consent of the French side to uh, have the non-French Jews, uh, for the time being, uh, deported from French soil. So... Deportations are beginning in earnest. They're probably not going at the rate that many within the SS would like them to. Um, and then something really significant, ha- significant happens and, and the Catholic Church begins to speak out, if you will, um, against the deportations. Um, and this really, really affects the French side's ability to, to mm-hmm. proceed with the deportations. Can you tell us why the church spoke out when it did and what effect it did actually have on the French side? Yeah, this is, this is uh, certainly the decisive period. So the time between uh, second half of July and early September 1942, because the uh, mass deportations are started uh, in mid-July, and they were accompanied by a scenery of atrocities, of inhuman treatment of just ordinary people, also in the perception of the bystanders. So herding people together, including women and children, uh, putting them in a place like the Villadorm at Iver, under uh, catastrophic uh, conditions as far as hygiene and other things were concerned. Uh, so uh, the, um, uh, the uh, perception, the public uh, opinion uh, was that this is a typical act of an aggressive occupying power, regardless what uh, 
ever French anti-Semitism could have been or would be, regardless, by the way, of the fact that many Frenchmen had been passive as far as Vichy's own anti-Jewish legislation and measures were concerned, regardless of the fact that also the Catholic Church had been very passive as far as uh, Vichy's own anti-Jewish legislation uh, was, was concerned. That was a turning point in the sense that it was the first time that the brutality and the ruthlessness of the German persecution of the Jews uh, well, was, was made visible and was perceived as particularly well appalling. And that triggered a remarkable uh, reaction among the higher ranks of the dignitaries of the Catholic Church. First, they of uh, their assembly, uh, the the uh, bishops and archbishops of of France, uh, at the end of July, uh, uh, drafted uh, a, a kind of resolution addressed to the head of state, uh, Marshal Pétain, where they expressed uh, their uh, their uh, well the, the the fact that. Uh, they were uh, extremely appalled by uh, the conditions under where the Jews had been herded together and had been deported. But that was still uh, a measure that uh, will happen, if you will, uh, behind closed doors. It was not a public protest. But one very significant and maybe even decisive fact was that one of those uh, archbishops, uh, uh, the Archbishop of uh, Toulouse, uh, Monseigneur Saliège, he uh, issued uh, uh, a letter uh, to be read from the pulpit for uh, his archdiocese, and that letter uh, was dispatched under very difficult circumstances to all uh, the uh, well, uh, local churches uh, within the archdiocese. It was read in large parts of the archdiocese from the pulpit. It was even broadcasted uh, by Radio London a couple of weeks later. And that put an enormous political pressure on the Vichy regime because uh, it was crystal clear that all this could only have happened, the deportations and the accompanying uh, appalling circumstances and atrocities, only uh, that could have happened with the consent and the immediate and direct help of French authorities, including the Vichy police that was actually uh, uh, the, the, the uh, institution that made the arrests and had uh, the, the Jews handed over to uh, their German persecutors. Are the church leaders responding to their diocese, to the people, or are they leading these calls? Are they the ones who are horrified, or are the churchgoers the ones that are horrified? Well, certainly both was the case, but as, as always in, in similar circumstances, it really depended on a very small group of mm. determined dignitaries of the, of the French uh, Catholic Church. And one was Saliège, the Archbishop uh, uh, of, of Toulouse, and the other one uh, was uh, the uh, Archbishop Gerlier, 
in uh, Lyon, who at the same time was the highest-ranking Catholic uh, dignitary in the uh, in the unoccupied zone. The city of Lyon is, was in 1942, still located in the unoccupied zone. And he himself had a conflict with the regional prefect of the region of, of Lyon, uh, who was himself the regional prefect, a uh, well, Vichy authority uh, official. And uh, he had asked uh, the, uh, the uh, one of the uh, a Catholic priest to hand him over his authorities, uh, a group of several dozens of Jewish children who had uh, f- sought and found refuge in a Catholic childcare uh, institution. And that priest refused to do that. And as a result, the regional prefect uh, uh, addressed himself to Gerlier, the uh, Archbishop, the Cardinal, actually of uh, of uh, of Lyon, and uh, Gerlier, uh, uh, in very significant terms, made it crystal clear that in his uh, jurisdiction, the Catholic Church would not, uh, well, do anything in support of the deportation measures. Uh, imposed by the Germans, allegedly, but executed by the Vichy authorities. So those were the two, if you will, towering figures of the resistance of the uh, uh, Catholic Church uh, against the deportation plan executed by the Vichy authorities. And that marked, if you will, the turn of the tide as far as the, well, uh, well, the, the implementation of the so-called final solution in France was concerned. So soon thereafter, or maybe a year or so thereafter, the war begins to turn against Germany, whereas up until about 1943, maybe a little bit earlier, it looks like Germany might win the war. That obviously affects the French calculations. When it begins looking clearer that Germany might lose the war, this is obviously also going to affect French collaboration. Um, What are the French reactions um, with regards to the deportation measures um, once news begins to filter through that Germany may not win this war? Well, the interesting thing is uh, that even earlier, and that was in, in early September, uh, 1942, so when the Germans were, were had already uh, conquered uh, uh, much of Stalingrad, then will they will, the, the German troops were still marching into the Caucasus, and and so uh, the general expectation uh, uh, was that uh, uh, the Germans at least could win the war, even if, of course, uh, that was uh, subject to uncertainty and speculation. But uh, at that stage, if you will, at the, at the peak of uh, uh, German military and political dominance in uh, all over Europe, it was under the pressure of the domestic resistance, uh, the uh, well, head of government, Pierre Laval, who himself approached, again, this very Karl Oberg, uh, uh, after after whom the Uber Bousquet headquarters uh, was, was named in uh, the subsequent uh, literature, admittedly, uh, asking for the deceleration 
of the pace of the deportation because uh, the uh, dignitaries, this handful uh, of determined Catholic dignitaries, uh, had uh, uh, well uh, articulated their uh, strong protest uh, directly vis-à-vis -vis the head of state, Marshal Pétain, and that he himself, uh, the head of government, Pierre Laval, uh, found himself under, again under the pressure of uh, Pétain, and that was why he uh, asked Oberg uh, to consider uh, the uh, kind of revision of the initially planned uh, deportation scheme and the, if you will, miracle that happened was that after consultation with uh, uh, no less a man like Heinrich Himmler, so the uh, well, highest ranking SS official, uh, uh, the, actually the, the, the head and uh, uh, chief of the SS, after consult consulting Himmler, Himmler himself uh, gave permission to uh, uh, restrain the deportation uh, to um, non-French Jews and to decelerate for the time being the uh, rhythm at the pace of the deportation. And that was a sign of the, well, uh, political uh, intelligence, if you will, of both the SS and Pierre Laval himself, because they were probably acting under the assumption that, uh, well, it was a matter of month, maybe, that, uh, well, Germany would be able to enforce its will on the French authority anyway, and it was not worth the effort to risk a political conflict with a collaborating Vichy a government over, well, let's say, a couple of thousand deported Jews, more or less. So it was this kind of cynical pragmatism that resulted in the fact that from September on, the pace of deportation of Jews from French soil significantly decreased. So... Do the French authorities continue to play a role up until the very end, till 1944, or do they begin to take a slow step backwards and do the Germans then sort of sweep in to try and fulfill the final solution and the deportation quota? Well, the political will and readiness uh, on the Vichy side to collaborate with the Germans uh, also in the area of their anti-Jewish agenda and the uh, rigid and comprehensive deportation of Jews from French soil, that readiness and inclination uh, decreased as well in the ongoing war. And certainly uh, the, uh, the turn of the tide, if you will, in military terms with the German and Italian defeat at El Alamein in uh, late November 1942, with the uh, uh, Allied landing in North Africa, with uh, the destruction of the Sixth Army in uh, Stalingrad, and the uh, well obvious, uh, well, uh, uh, well, uh, turn uh, of uh, the military or the change of the military situation in favor of the anti-Hitler coalition. 
uh, that uh, uh, exerted its own impact on the political uh, disposition of the Vichy regime. So anything uh, that uh, compromised uh, the, uh, the French government in Vichy as a collaborator with the Germans became less and less attractive. And that, uh, of course, also affected the uh, readiness of the Vichy officials, at least, to collaborate uh, in the area of the anti-Jewish persecution as well. I want to end with a quote because we're running up, uh, running out of time at the moment. But um, it's an argu- a quote that I think captures your argument perfectly. Um, and I quote, The persecution of the Jews in France was guided by the ambivalence of the pursuit of power within the power-sharing administration. And the radicalization or containment of persecution depended on whether the key actors on the German and French sides who were competing for power were forced to include the effects of moral norms in their calculations, even though they did not necessarily share these moral norms themselves. Mm-hmm. Now I have one, hopefully two questions that flows from this. Um, and indeed from the book as a whole. What role do you ascribe to ideology in all of this? Well, ideology was the necessary but not the sufficient condition. Mm. Without anti-Semitism and without the ideologically motivated uh, determination to wipe out an entire uh, minority uh, from the surface of the earth, uh, that genocide would not have happened. However, it was not a sufficient condition uh, because, uh, well, the Germans were not able to do it all alone. So the dependence on the uh, human, organizational, economic and military resources uh, of German-occupied countries was a decisive factor in the implementation of the Holocaust. And the significant and uh, very revealing uh, phenomenon in France is exactly the ambivalence of a power-sharing arrangement, because the power-sharing arrangement implied the mechanism of bargaining and negotiations. In that bargaining process, it depended on the relative gains that were to be made by both sides. But as far as the Vichy side, the French side was concerned, at a certain point, and that was in June, July 1942, it seemed to be advantageous to make concessions to the Germans also as far as the so-called final solution of the Jewish question was concerned in terms of making available French police forces and French administrative capacity for uh, the German persecutors. But from a certain point on, and that depended uh, on the domestic support for those persecutory persecutory measures, uh, the uh, visual authorities were less willing uh, to uh, collaborate also in the so-called final solution of the Jewish question. And that reveals that, on the one hand, it was not necessary to become a collaborator in the persecution of the Jews uh, to be an anti-Semite. And this is much more disturbing than the notion of 
anti-Semitism and the ideological motivation to be a necessary condition for the persecution. That was not the case. But on the other hand, it also tells us how strong the political impact of morality can be, because it was the original moralic moral uh, impulse uh, that there are things we cannot do to, well, humans, uh, especially not from a Christian perspective. And that was exactly uh, the perspective that had, uh, that, that was articulated by those few high-ranking dignitaries of the Catholic Church. And that demonstrates how fragile complicity can be complicity in mass crime and that is worth that it is worth every effort to mobilize moral resistance as a precondition for political and decisive resistance against mass crime and finally um, and this is a kind of a nerdy question but i'm going to ask it uh, recently i've been reading a book by a guy who i'm sure you know well william niscannon and he, he talked about um what he calls the bureaucrats maximand by which he meant the, that bureaucrats tend to view maximizing their budgets and therefore their uh, authority or power mm-hmm. of their departments uh, as their primary function seen as the people that you've covered were all bureaucrats of a sort uh, mm-hmm. and that this budget slash power maximizing behavior is typical of most bureaucracies, do you think that a modern day bureaucracy would behave any differently in a similar situation? Well, quite honestly, I don't think so. Okay. If conditions arise that make, from that point of view, collaboration in mass crime and complicity in mass crime, well, if you will, profitable for one's own or sake and and uh, for one's own authority uh, why should we uh, imagine a bureaucrats to behave differently than they behaved 70 or 75 years ago so the decisive point is that without moral impulse without a sound ethical grounding of what you do as a bureaucrat. Everything is possible. And the fact that you always need an example, that you always need leadership for uh, morality to prevail is also a lesson to be learned from the French case in the implementation of the Holocaust, because that leadership was not displayed by the people in charge in the Vichy government and the Vichy authorities, but it was displayed by just a handful of, uh, well, uh, high-ranking dignitaries of the Catholic Church. It could have been everybody, but the fact, and that's one part of the irony of the story, that the Catholic Church belong to the political pillars and supporters of the very Vichy regime made it so influential once it took a different stance in uh, as far as the uh, persecution of the Jews was uh, concerned. And the tipping point, like I said, was the summer of 1942. And the change, of course, it uh, the Catholic dignitaries 
basically imposed, if you will, on the Vichy government as far as the pace of the deportation of the Jews from French soil was concerned. Well, it's getting dark and you have to go and get a taxi. So the book is called Persecution and Rescue, The Politics of the Final Solution in France, 1940 to 1944, published last year with the University of Michigan Press. If you want to read the original in German, it's called Macht und Moral, which is a more revealing title perhaps. Um, die Endlösung der Judenfrage in Frankreich, 1940 bis 1944, published with Constance University Press. Honestly, I, I can't emphasize enough how highly I recommend this book. It's both the most convincing and, and perhaps also, sadly, the most uh, frightening analysis of the Holocaust that I've ever read. So get out there, buy it, read it. Professor Seibel, thank you so much for, for joining me today. My pleasure, and thank you very much.